All right, guys, if you have a Bible with you, you can open up to 1 Timothy chapter 6. We're going to be wrapping up our series in 1 Timothy this week. And next, starting next week, we're starting a new series. Uh, if you were with us uh, when we first launched, we went through the first uh, 12 chapters of Genesis from uh, creation up to the Tower of Babel. And during the summer, what we're going to do is we're going to be back in Genesis, and we're going to be looking at the story of Abraham. Uh, I'm really excited about this, and I encourage you, uh, if you did not get to hear our series in the beginning, uh, you can go back to our website, and we have all the sermons on there. You can catch up and uh, be ready for that. But with that said, I want to start this off, us off this morning with uh, some lyrics by an American songwriter and poet. Now, they're kind of somber, sobering lyrics, but I think they uh, point to something uh, very true to life. So an American songwriter and poet penned these sobering lyrics. He said, live life. Live life like you're going to die, because you're going to. I hate to be the bearer of bad news, but you're going to die. Maybe not today or even next year, but before you know it, you'll be saying, is this all there was? What was all the fuss? Why did I bother? Now, maybe you won't suffer. Maybe it's quick. But you'll have time to think, why did I waste it? Why didn't I taste it? Now, that American songwriter and poet is none other than the great William Shatner. Now, before you shrug this off uh, by the fact that this, these were lyrics written by Captain Kirk right now, uh, I actually want to point out the fact that this he says a lot here, and this actually... Um, is something worth considering. See, we all have a limited amount of time on this earth, and we don't want to waste it. We don't want to look back at the end of our days with regrets for not pursuing something that is actually meaningful and worthwhile. Now, no matter how hard we try, we all have limited amount of time uh, and energy as well. Some, ha some of you guys have more energy. Some of, you, some of us have less. Uh, but whoever you are, you ultimately are faced with the fact that you and I don't have unlimited resources, unlimited time and energy on this uh, earth during this life. And we have to decide what we'll do with our time. And that means saying yes to some things and saying no to others. So how do we decide then what we will spend our time with? How do we uh, learn to say yes to certain, what things to say yes to and what things to say no to in life? Does God give us any direction on how to do this? I believe he does. As a matter of fact, uh, that's what I want to look at with you guys this week. So, I always give you the big idea up front. Uh, here's the big idea for you. If you take nothing else away from this sermon, if you're taking notes, this is something worth writing down. This is what, the piece of advice I want you to remember. Pursue that which lasts. Let me say that again. Pursue that which lasts. So we've been looking at the book of 1 Timothy for the past five weeks. Now, as I've said before, it's a letter written by the Apostle Paul to his apprentice in the ministry, Timothy. And there's a situation going on with the church in Ephesus. And so what he does is Paul sends Timothy in to straighten things out so that the whole church might continue to grow and thrive in a healthy way. Now, this week we're in the last of our series, and what we find is that what Paul's going to do here is he's going to sum up a lot of concepts, a lot of ideas he's already thrown out there, uh, and he's going to bring it all back together 
uh, while stressing the importance of what Timothy and the church will pursue in life going forward. So, if you have a Bible, please turn to 1 Timothy chapter 6, starting in the latter part of verse 2. We read, Teach and urge these things. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words, which produce envy, dissension, slander, and evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. Verse 6, But godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root, is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses." I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Jesus Christ who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will display at the proper time. He who is blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see. To him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of the riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. Verse 20. O Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. Avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. For by professing it, some have swerved from the faith. Grace be with you. This is the word of the Lord. Okay. Paul begins this section with a call once again to teach and urge these things. The, these things that he's talking about or what he's just finished writing about, which lets the reader know that the letter itself is coming to an end. Now, throughout this letter, Paul has emphasized that the right teaching of God's word is central to building and maintaining a healthy church. Therefore, he, demand, he reminds t- Timothy in verse 3, if anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. Now, I need to point this out because it's often overlooked in our day and age. By saying that there is false teaching and false doctrine, 
by implication, what Paul is saying here is that there also must be absolute true teaching and true doctrine as well. See, Paul wouldn't say that if it wasn't certain that there is an absolute truth and that such truth can actually be known by people. Now, I say this because we live in a time where the idea of absolute truth, especially as it regards God and His Word, is often discouraged. Lots of people will basically tell you that if you, you can't know anything for certain, and if you say that you can, you are forcing your beliefs on people, and that, they reason, is bad. Now, not only that, but because absolute truth is viewed as unknowable in our world, so we are told that diversity of opinions is what is most valued in all of life, including matters of faith. Basically, if there is no absolute truth, what we, what we then value as highest rather than truth is self-expression or your own personal beliefs or convictions. Now, there are some things, guys, in life for which diversity is great. Cultural diversity, for example, is great. God made every person and every people group unique, and so we read in the Bible that God desires to have followers from every tribe, tongue, and nation. In that sense, diversity is a beautiful thing. However, there are other things in life for which diversity isn't nearly as important as unity. These have often been referred to, these things that unite us, have often been referred to historically as the essentials of the faith. Now, I know people have been using the word essentials uh, for a lot of things uh, and kind of hijacked this word, but we're taking it back this morning. So, these essentials are things like the belief that there is one God who has created all things, that he has spoken to us through the prophets and the apostles in what we call the Bible, that mankind has rejected him as Lord, and as a result, the only way to be made right with him is through trusting in the sacrifice of Jesus Christ in our place that we might experience a new life with him. If we aren't united on these essentials, these basic ideas and core doctrines, we really aren't a family of faith. We're just a bunch of people who hang out with each other. The reason I point this out is because we have to first make sure what unites us before we can appreciate how our opinions differ. So before we look at the, the, the subtle nuance and differences of opinions and things, and things which may not be as essential, we have to first ground ourselves in what are the essentials? What are the non-negotiables? And so we're looking at this idea of pursuit today. And in order to do that, we have to make sure we're actually pursuing the same goal. Namely, the goal of honoring God and becoming what He has always intended for us to be. See, the problem with the false teachers in Ephesus is that they focused on a, bun on a bunch of little things and missed out on the essentials of the faith. As a result, they were pursuing the wrong goal, the wrong thing. Paul goes on to give this long description then of these false teachers which is really, if you look at it, it's the opposite of the godliness and virtue he said that leaders, true leaders in the church, are supposed to have. Specifically, what I want to do, however, is focus on the last description he gives of them in verse 6, when he says that they are imagining that godliness is a means of gain. That is, these false teachers 
saw the appearance of godliness as a means to wealth and to esteem. They liked to be respected, and they liked to get things. They liked being in a position of power over people. They liked being paid. Now, last week, we looked at honor and showed that Paul did tell the church to both respect those who labor in teaching and preaching, and also to pay them as well. So then how can these men be wrong for desiring these things if Paul himself told us as a church to honor leaders in these ways? So if respect and pay for their labor is something Paul told us to do, and these guys like respect and they like getting paid for, for their labor, why is it that these guys are wrong? Well, how do we sort this out? Well, we look at Paul's next statement. Verse 6, it says, But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. Now, here's the difference, guys. The false teachers saw godliness as a means to an end. But Paul says that godliness is great gain. Not as a means to great gain, but it is itself great gain. Do you catch the difference? That is, it's not the means to an end. Godliness, being more like God in our character, is an end in and of itself. It's not the means to get something, it's the thing we're striving for. Therefore, seeing godliness as gain happens when it's paired with contentment. Now, contentment, ironically, is another virtue that the Greco-Roman culture that Paul lived in valued as a society. Uh, once again, uh, we've come back to this idea of virtue and touched on it for a few weeks. But in case you missed it, I said that virtues are admirable traits that both Christians and non-Christians would agree upon. So the Bible calls Christian leaders to be virtuous because virtue gives you credibility with people. It makes you someone not to be ignored. Virtue gives, you, gives weight to your words. Or to use a more ancient word, virtue gives you gravitas. Now, Paul is saying that if you are content to have your needs met and to pursue godliness in life, then you are on the right track. Now, let me give you another word for contentment that I think will help. Satisfaction. Now, when you and I seek to be people who follow God's word, it leads us to desire to be more like him, to emulate his character. And as we seek to share his kindness, his justice, his honesty, his compassion, just to name a few of these things, we are satisfied in life. Thus, godliness with contentment is great gain. So take note of this, guys. If you want to be satisfied in life, pursue the godliness which comes from sound biblical teaching. And the opposite is true as well. So if godliness with contentment is great gain if godliness if seeking godliness pursuing godliness and feel and being satisfied in life go together then the opposite is true when our pursuits and desires get off track we become anxious and dissatisfied therefore paul warns the church with these words verse 9 but those who desire to be rich fall into temptation into a snare into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It's through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith 
and pierced themselves with many pangs. Now, at this point, it might seem that Paul is just ragging on the wealthy for being rich. That's not 100% true. See, notice he doesn't say here that the rich are inherently evil or that money itself is evil. Rather, it's the desire or the pursuit of these things. He says those who desire to be rich fall into temptation. The love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. So what Paul is warning them is that if you make stuff the goal, you will never be satisfied. So J.D. Rockefeller was one was at one point in time America's first billionaire. And one day a reporter famously asked him, how much money is enough? His response was simple, just a little bit more. This, is per this perfectly illustrates Paul's point here, guys. If what you are pursuing in life is more stuff, more things, guys, it'll never be enough. Now, you don't have to be a billionaire to think like this either. So maybe just a little bit more for you is a bigger house, a nicer job, a different partner. For some folks, it might even be something like the next drink or the next fix. The basic idea with these is all the same, however. Seek them as much as you will, they will never satisfy. And then Paul then takes this unexpected turn here. Having done this, he then takes like a sharp left and bursts into praise of God. He says in verse 13, he says, I charge you in the presence of God, who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession, to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will display at the proper time. He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings, Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see. To him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. Now, this spontaneous outbreak here is what we refer to as a doxology. Don't, now, don't misconstrue this here, guys. This is not Paul just getting off topic. It's not like he just forgot what he was saying and just went on a, a little sidetrack rant. There's a very specific reason why he launches into this here. And what, the reason is because this idea that Paul refers to here, to here called the good confession. It actually comes up uh, two times in this chapter. In one point, Paul tells us uh, to uh, give the good confession. And here, he mentions Jesus before Pontius Pilate as uh, giving the good confession. Now, it's helpful to, what, uh, to understand what's meant by confession here. So, to give you another word to help kind of understand what we mean there, he doesn't just mean confession the way we talk about, like, confessing sins. Jesus was sinless. He wasn't confessing sins here. Rather, when he talks about the confession here, or the good confession, he's talking about a commitment. So when Jesus confessed that he was the Christ, the Savior, before Pontius Pilate, a man who could either have him put to death or free him, Jesus was in essence honoring his commitment to God above his own personal safety. Likewise, God calls us to maintain our commitment to Him. So how do we honor that commitment? Well, simple. By, as Paul says, by keeping the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. That is, we keep to our commitment through our obedience. Now, 
by sticking to the Bible without compromise, not just by reading it, but by actually seeking to obey its commands, we are, try we are trying to maintain our good confession. Now, don't forget, guys, lest you misconstrue what I'm think saying here. We are always made right with God solely on the basis of what Jesus has done for us. What Paul's talking about here is how, that, is how the cross affects not only our afterlife or our eternity, but how it affects us in the here and now. So, reading over this, something also struck me. See, Paul could tell us to follow Jesus until the day we die. He could have written it that way. He could have said, just follow Jesus until you die. But he doesn't. Instead, he points to the second coming by saying, until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. And the same idea of looking beyond just this present life is also found in verse 19 when he says that we are to do good works that they may, that they may take hold of that which is truly life. What's he getting at? Well, he's getting at this. As we maintain our commitment to God, we are moving past temporary things and onto eternal things. Or as other biblical writers would put it, we are pursuing eternal life. So when the Bible talks about eternal life, guys, we tend to think that eternal life is pretty much synonymous with life after death. But that's not necessarily true. Rather, it's the life the way it was always meant to be lived. It begins now and continues after we die. See, eternal life starts here and it continues for all eternity. It is, in essence, a life worth living forever. Let me put it this way. By maintaining our commitment to God and His Word, we are pursuing that which lasts forever. And in doing that, we find true satisfaction. So this pursuit is so important that every individual, uh, to every individual, that Paul then ends his letter by stressing its importance to Timothy personally. Verse 20, he says, O Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. Avoid the irreverent, babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. For by professing it, some have swerved from the faith. Grace be with you. See, Paul loves Timothy like a son. And so he stresses to him that in the process of doing all this good, healthy church stuff, to not miss out on it himself. See, this is a reminder to everyone who would be a leader in the church, myself included, don't let leadership distract you from pursuing the only life that will truly satisfy. Stay the course. Now, this goes beyond just the leadership, though. See, there's a danger, to be honest with you guys, in pursuing good things that could also distract us from pursuing the ultimate thing, experiencing the joy and satisfaction of knowing God personally. Guys, I'll be honest, I've seen people do this. I've seen good people make the ministry an end goal, and as a result, they cause themselves a ton of frustration and burnout. See, real knowledge, knowing God intimately, is the only thing that will ultimately satisfy in life. Don't let anything rob you of that. Don't let anything take your satisfaction. See, if you are finding yourself doing Christian things but missing out on a relationship with Jesus, understand that the godly thing to do in that moment is to pump the brakes. See, we lead by example, 
And by prioritizing our faith, we set the right example. Sometimes the best form of leadership is actually stepping back from leadership to get your pursuits in order. Remember, keep everything in the right perspective. So what have we seen here? Well, if you're going to pursue something in life, pursue that which lasts. It begins by pursuing the truth. The truth is found in the Word of God. This leads us to godliness and true satisfaction in life. And that frees us from the trap of having to always get more. Instead, we are anchored by our commitment of faith to God, which now allows us to begin to experience eternal life in the here and now. All this leads us back to one simple question, guys. Am I actually committed? Are you actually committed? See, in order to benefit from this message, you have to accept it for yourself. It just can't be something you talk about. It's got to be something that affects you deep down. In In essence, it has to be something you are willing to pursue with everything you've got. Mark my words here, guys. What you are committed to, that you will pursue. You will either come to the end of your days feeling as though you've wasted your time, or what I hope is that we will get to the end of our days happy that we pursued the things we did. And if you want to pursue something that lasts forever, you have to be committed to it. And it starts now. See, the only thing that will ultimately satisfy in life is pursuing a life devoted to God by trusting in Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. By trusting in Christ, we put our promises in the right order. We put our, I'm sorry, we put our priorities in the right order. We set ourselves on the right pursuit. So you see, Christ calls us to live a life worth living forever, eternal life. And my only question to you this morning is this. Will you pursue it? Bow your heads, let's pray. God, we thank you. We thank you that while we were still sinners, your grace and your mercy pursued us. God, we are thankful that we can have a restored and right relationship with you through Jesus Christ. We thank you that we are free to experience eternal life. And Lord, in you and you alone are we satisfied. God, help us to pursue godliness. Give us contentment. Help us to understand that in you we have everything we need. Lord God, we trust you. We thank you this morning. In the ways in which we struggle and doubt to believe this, Lord, help our unbelief. Help us to be people who strengthen one another. Help us to be people who pursue godliness. For in Jesus' name we pray, amen.